after life, particularly hell. Okay. Continue our discussion on hell. I thought it was just going to last a few weeks, but things keep coming up in my study and in my mind, so we'll continue to push it. And, and um, might be just this week and a week after that. After that, I want to do some things maybe in the, in the Psalms having to do with just the different types of Psalms and one Psalm from each one. And then after that, we want to do a study on... Uh, on the dangerous preachers out there today, the false preachers and teachers that we want to be mindful of, that are popular today, some that have been around forever and ever, um, and just keep, you know, they're still peddling what they're peddling. And uh, so let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for our gathering time and for the desire, I hope, that is in our hearts to come together and not just have a place to go on Sunday, you know, but to wish that Sunday was... You know, that every day could be more like Sunday and um, that we would have more uh, motivation and more passion to understand what it is you've written and why it's important in all its details. Even things like this that, as we discuss such a weighty topic, uh, what, what we have always believed, what some of the unfortunate medieval visions uh, of the afterlife have done what what cinema and theater has done to influence our understanding of hell and the afterlife and how we can let those things if we're not careful guide us away from scripture so help us to understand what your word says think about it to dwell upon it and uh, above all to be grateful for it even when we don't understand it fully uh, and to live as your friends as your children as your partners in the manifestation of your glory through Christ. Amen. Amen. So we've talked a good deal about why we should talk about hell, how we should talk about hell. And we talked a little bit about, you know, just sort of our own our own familiarity with hell, the things we've been taught, the things we've repeated, the things we've lived with, uh, that we've persuaded ourselves are true about hell. I think there are, regardless if this is the case or not with the topic of hell, there are things in our Christian faith that we sort of just... Uh, well, there are those that we would say that disagree with us about things that they're Kool-Aid drinkers. Well, there's also a Christian form of Kool-Aid, I think, that Christians can drink without paying much attention to what they're drinking as well. Um, so I want to take a little bit of a look at... And sometimes when you... When you come against things that you're not used to thinking about, and things that um, in Scripture somebody else's point of view, it, it does us good to study those things because it sharpens your own understanding, but it helps you, first of all, to be able to articulate your own belief. When someone has a contrary belief or a contrary opinion, we should be able to articulate uh, why we don't believe that, or at least <coughs> how that thing that's being argued against us uh, might need some more thought. <coughs> for us to articulate. Sometimes we don't understand what we think we understand good enough to argue against you know, against it. And again, some of that is because we've, um, we've just assumed so many things. I think a good example of that that I don't want to go over, but we've reviewed in here, for example, has to do with origins in Genesis and the great mistake the church has made for many years of treating Genesis 1 like a science book and the, to the devastating effects that that's had. Uh, in the church for both whether it's young earth old earth middle earth up earth down whatever um, not understanding the culture and the context that something was written in 
and being able to understand how is it written. Because again, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us, but it was not written to us. Unless you're 2,000 years old, it wasn't written to you. Um, okay. I want to take a look then, with that in mind this week, about um, a particular view about hell. And that is... Um, well, there's, there's a couple of views about an annihilation that are out there. Our Seventh-day Adventist friends hold to the fact that uh, hell just doesn't exist, period. Um, and we don't need to get into a lot of detail about that. You're just annihilated um, upon, that, uh, upon that time. You stand before the Lord and that's it. Uh, the view that I want us to look at a little bit today comes from John Scott. Now, the reason why... It's, uh, it's worthy to understand and take a look at this is because John Scott was probably one of, as I've mentioned in here before, <coughs> one of the 20th century's most influential theologians. Uh, extremely bright man. A massive heart for God and the gospel. He, everything about him was the gospel. Everything he did and thought and pursued was for the glory of Christ. And uh, I mentioned a little bit at the end of our discussion a few weeks ago that he does hold, in his words, tentatively to the position of an annihilationism which takes place after the resurrection, after there's been judgment, and then there's a period of eternal, of eternal torment, uh, I'm sorry, of conscious torment, but that it is not eternal. That at some point, uh, the persons that are not going to be with Christ in glory are annihilated. Um, how long that period of, of uh, torment, conscious torment in it is, is unsaid. Um, so I just want to present his position and interact with that a little bit. Uh, because it's, um, like all things John Stott did, it's well thought out, well articulated, and very much based on Scripture. Whether or not he understood it right or offered something, you know, something we can determine. But I just want to remind you what he did say when he said, I do not dogmatize about the position to which I've come. Okay? Other places... It's been said that you know people have heard that Scott, at the end of his life, was just sort of agnostic about the whole idea of his position. Well, that's another way of saying I'm not dogma- I'm not going to dogmatize, um, because he holds such a high view of the church's tradition on the teaching of hell. He approached it with a great deal of humility, and I think what what little I've read, and I mean little that I've read of him. Um, he came to this position because he just wanted to understand it and, and, and to know how I think in his mind the idea of someone suffering eternal torment it just, just about drove him nuts I mean he just couldn't take it and is the sense I get he said I, I do not dogmatize about the position to which I have come I hold to it tentatively but I do plead for frank dialogue among evangelicals on the basis of scripture I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to the eternal conscious torment. So that's where he basically came down. Is that the church ought to be, they ought to be able to have a dialogue. Again, I'm just presenting to you his... That the church ought to be able to at least have dialogue and that the position of ultimate annihilation after a period of conscious torment should be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. So, is, is anybody at all familiar with these, this particular topic as I'm presenting it right now? Mm-hmm. Has anyone ever even heard sort of this, I'll call it a third option because I had never really heard of this before. In fact, I've just never really 
heard that much about any other opinion about hell than there's either hell or there's not and that's a major dividing line and it's heresy to say that there isn't hell which is, of course is true because scripture clearly teaches there is hell I think there's also been a lot of confusion about the word Hades, Tartarus all these other words that have just been tossed around as hell which don't belong there I don't think, Mark uh, I just get the impression that Scott and maybe others are uncomfortable with the stark uh, justice of God mm-hmm. and uh, maybe we don't fully grasp that or don't want to because it, it's it's an absolute I think that we don't generally have to deal with mm-hmm. I mean in our lives you know everything is kind of right. like a gray area yeah. but uh, <clears throat> I think maybe they want to soften what God is saying this is the way it is mm-hmm. and uh, I think his response would be the Bible doesn't say this is the way it is. That's what his response would be based on what I've read of him. I can just uh, confirm that uh, while I was in Jamaica, uh, Seventh day Adventist Church was extremely popular there. Uh About 50% almost. uh, Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty heavy. And you are correct on your Mm -hmm. uh, stance on what they believe. At least I'll get that much right today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, and if Scott argues the Bible isn't clear, I mean, that uh, does he deal with the whole, you know, Jesus said there's going to be weeping, gnashing yes. teeth, you know, the worm never dies, the fires never quench. I yes. mean, I guess that's more talking about hell itself and maybe not the person. Yeah, we'll talk about that some. It's a good question, Jonathan. Uh, he does interact with that. He interacts with, and again, this is simply off a, this is an excerpt from a book that he had, a dialogue with a, with a very liberal theologian talking about a number of concepts and this comes from again this is sort of just a um, a synopsis so to speak of dialogue he had with this person about hell Uh, one thing he refused to call it whether it was eternal or not is eternal torture Mm. because scripture never uses that he would argue never use the word about someone being tortured for all eternity Um, yes it's been said that the best of men are men at best. So, uh, you know, Paul says, who is Paul? Who is Apollo? Right, sure. Um, who's John Stott? Right. I mean, yep. we may uphold him as a great teacher right. and so on, but he's still a man. Sure. And I wouldn't want to say that he, because he held it, therefore he must his, his opinion must be held in high regard, right. no matter who he is. No, I just think we owe, I, I always think we owe the interaction. I think anytime someone brings something and they're confused, if, if they may think that we're confused, we may think they're confused. If someone wants to talk scripture, we should talk scripture all day long with them. As long as we're talking scripture, you know what I mean? And I agree, just because it's John Stott, uh, we should never say, well... But because it is John Stott, there are certain things in our life that it's just fairly intuitive to us. When someone has been regarded in a certain way, their opinion is very important. That's why scripture talks about, I believe, Apollos, when he was a man of... Um, he was a man of high esteem. He was mighty in the word and that kind of thing. I mean, he's yet he had some things to learn. But he was highly regarded as our other men in scripture. I can say because it ha- it happened in an era when I was very much studying the subject, mm. and some of his colleagues who were professors at the seminary that I was attending, mm. when they heard about it, when when it leaked out what he believed, they were they were daunted by it. They yeah. were they were very greatly disappointed. Mm-hmm. A number of them had written to him. Yeah. Some of them were very close friends of his, huh? and were really surprised that he. Yeah. That he leaned on that side. Yeah, yeah. Tony, I was just wondering if you got into um, the, 
the judgment or the atonement? How does someone who is in hell, their sin get paid for and therefore that they are annihilated? Is it the annihilation of that person that eventually that, that sin gets atoned for? Or my guess, no, my guess, it, it, my guess is the annihilation represents that it's not atoned for. But they're toast. The history they're gone because it's not atoned for. So it's, a, it's an open, open, open-ended judgment. I don't it, follow. It, well, it never gets paid for. The sin eventually goes away without getting paid for. I think that'd probably be true in the case of eternal conscious torment as well. It's never really fully satisfied because it takes all eternity. You know what I mean? So I think that would be the case in either case, I would think. Yes, April. I would say so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the scripture chooses certain words. <coughs> it says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Right. Right. And uh, I guess that, you know that's somewhat in here as well. I guess the point about that would be a uh, assuming it's a parable. <coughs> Uh, it also talks about the intermediate state, not the final state. Uh, and there are those that argue we have some type of body in the intermediate state as well. That's a different, that's a different subject. There's a lot of stuff in Christianity that's out there that we don't interact with on a lot. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, there's a lot of stuff, and uh, it's good to it's good to know what's out there. It's good to interact with. It. Again, it's good to. Um, I had a professor said you know that heresy. And whether or not temporary and temporary torment is heresy or not uh, is heresy or not uh, we can talk about. But heresy is like a wildfire, you know. It burns, and what comes back is a whole lot greener. You know what I mean? It destroys what's out there, but what comes back is a whole lot greener because uh, we're able to interact with that. And we've heresy has been a, a great friend to Christianity. It really helped us to refine our creeds. And you know the other creeds, but an emphasis on scripture, and combating and interacting with, I would say pretty much every creed was born out of heresy, wasn't it? Or at least a need to sort of keep heresy from becoming heresy. Yeah. All right. Let me just sort of offer you his thoughts, and again, we'll be able to interact with them. Uh, He said, in order to answer that question, we need to survey the biblical material afresh. And to open our minds, not just our hearts, to the possibility that Scripture points in the direction of annihilation. There's nothing wrong with that statement whatsoever. Anytime a Christian comes to me and says, "We need," I'd like to survey the biblical material afresh and ask you to keep an open mind. If I say, no, I'm not going to do that, well, hopefully he'll find someone a little bit more worthy, compassionate, and loving. Because anytime someone says, I think I see something in the Bible, can you help me with it or take a look at it? I'd be folly not to. Or at least to say, if once the subject comes up, I feel like I don't know enough to interact with that. Let's get someone else. You know what I mean? Uh, to the possibility that Scripture points in the direction of annihilation and that eternal conscious torment is a tradition which has to yield to the supreme authority of Scripture. So you can see he holds a very high view of Scripture. Or at least it sounds that way. In the, in the way he sees that there are four arguments that, that sort of mitigate against this idea of eternal conscious torment. They relate to language, and I'm going to just give... This is a narrowed-down thing that he had, and I'm just giving you samples of the narrowed-down thing. So I'm just kind of giving you 
you know, we're passing the hors d'oeuvres and they're walking by you very fast. You, you only get one bacon wrapped scallop. You don't get four. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> he said there are four arguments. They relate to language, imagery, justice, and universalism. Okay, and so then he he takes each one of those in turn and interacts with them using specifically scriptures, some of the Greek, which I'm not going to get into because. You know, if I gave you a Greek word, and I don't do this <clears throat> when I preach, I'm not sure that I've ever used a Greek word, because what difference does it make? I don't tell you the Latin for it. It was around in the 4th century. I, mean, I don't. I mean, you're not going to walk out of remembering what the Greek word means. I suppose some preachers do it. I don't think it's nothing wrong with it. I just don't know what use it is. It's helpful when you're reading, because you can take notes, but... Anyway, people don't walk out, hey, what would you think of that Greek word, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was meaningful. Uh, people want the concept, right? Anyway... <coughs> <clears throat> he says <clears throat> the first one um, the first being language so he says and again we can interact with us then Jesus himself told us not to be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul rather he can you continue to be afraid of the one <clears throat> God who can destroy both soul and body in hell Matthew 10 28 and then uh, James four twelve. if to kill is to deprive the body of life Hell would seem to be the deprivation of both physical and spiritual life, that is, an, extinct, an extinction of being. It would seem strange, therefore, if people who are said to suffer destruction are in fact not destroyed. And as you put it, it's difficult to imagine a perpetually inconclusive process of perishing. <clears throat> it cannot, I think, be replied that it is impossible to destroy human beings because they are immortal, for immortality and therefore indestructibility of the soul is a Greek and not a biblical concept. So he's getting into a couple of things here. Okay? So the key thing is he's saying, he's quoting Jesus' scripture, saying that don't fear the one that can destroy the body after that can do no more. <coughs> okay? So what does that mean? Well, they could <coughs> kill the body. Right? They don't fear those that can kill the body. But after that can't do any more. But, but fear the one that can... After the body has been destroyed, he can destroy both body and soul in hell. So, do you get his point? If kill means to bring an end to something, then doesn't that mean an end to bring an end also to your, to your soul as well as to your body? Yes, Mark. Um, he says, fear the one that can kill both body and soul. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that annihilationism is sort of like looking forward to a relief. Because if, why would you fear something that was nothing? Uh, I don't know. I suppose, um, let's say you knew you were going to spend, uh, you know, ten years in an in an Iraqi prison camp and be raped every other day by big hairy homosexual Iraqi men, and you know it's going to be over in ten years. It doesn't make today a whole lot more comfortable for me, right? But so, but I, I, I mean, I get that sense of where you're coming from. What I'm saying is that mm -hmm. whatever that terrible thing mm -hmm. that we might endure mm -hmm. as punishment mm -hmm. is, annihilationism represents relief right. at the end and nothing. And, and, and I think some people can look at that and say, uh, okay, mm -hmm. I've got to look I've got to live through that anyway, um, but I know that there's going to be blessed, mm -hmm. I guess you have to call it blessed relief. Yeah. But it, it, the term fear is <gasps> <of> that. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. It's confusing. 
Well, I, I think it. I think that you know that's a. I think it's a valid kind of question. I still think that we would fear. Um, I don't know. Would you fear non-existence? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it is this. Yeah. But is the idea of, of living in eternal torment more palatable? Right than death. I don't know. I, because we don't know enough. Very frankly, we don't know enough about hell. As much as we think we know about it, I don't think we know enough about it to know what what that existence is like. One of the let, let's just get some more input over here, Barbara. Well, scripture says to fear the one mm-hmm. who can destroy yes. body and soul. So I think the bigger question is, why should we fear the one? Right, that's a great point. You know, what yeah, don't fear the consequence. Fear the one. <coughs> There's a reason why we should. Well, like, you know what? That's such a great point because we don't love just the benefits. We love God as well. I mean, if heaven were nothing but God and nothing else, would that be good enough? You know what I mean? So I, I think you make a great point. So thanks for it. That's very, that's very, seems to me very scripturally focused. Fear the one. Yeah, don't fear the punishment, but fear the one. Although it's because we know what he can do, we should fear the one that's got the power to do that. What can he do? Right, exactly. <coughs> exactly. Well, that, that leads into what I was going to say, too, is that, you know, if you're the one who can, yep. like, yes, he can do it, yep. but does he? Right. So, it yeah. seems like thought's kind of assuming a little bit into the word can. Yeah. He I, can do it, Yeah. but that doesn't necessarily mean he does do it. I think his point on this is, what does it mean to have something destroyed? And that's a very important talk. You've probably interacted with that yourself, Gary. Susan? I don't see how people would fear annihilation as because people who don't believe in hell or heaven think that just when they die, they're not going to exist. Well, that's the point, too. I mean, they're, they're not going to fear either. Right. They don't fear either. No. There's no thought about it, right. so to speak. So, uh, and, and of course, that's unfortunate. But just uh, to think that you're not just yeah. going to exist, there's yeah. no fear in that. It's interesting that in the book of Acts, where we see the life of the church and the evangelization, you never hear mention of hell. You never hear mention of eternal. You never hear you, you hear mention of judgment, but you never hear mention of hell in the entire book of Acts. When you hear the preaching of the gospel, you never hear in it this sort of warning or threat about hell, which is just interesting. I just it's just an observation. Stuff I'm trying to interact with because I I like to put myself in the position of what if I had to debate this guy, right? Um, you know, get sort of terrified at the thought of it. Of course, I'd win now because he's dead and he can't say anything. But <laughs> what do you? What do you? Yes, Harry. Uh, getting back to the Book of Acts, which is a good point you you bring out because in the Book of Acts we have you know preaching that mm. sprung from. Christ commission uh-huh. in the 13th chapter Paul who's debating with the Jews in the synagogue they hear the word of God they're scorning the gospel yep. and he says to them you judge yourselves unworthy Worthy of eternal, eternal life, life. Yep. <clears throat> henceforth I turn to the Gentiles yep. so though he doesn't use the terminology uh-huh. of eternal destruction or anything right. of that mm-hmm. sort he does say like the the rich man that came to Jesus and said, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Yep. All right. Yep. 
Yeah, he says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Therefore, yeah. you have spurned the gospel and it's turned away from you. Yeah, and one of the things that is additionally confusing and requires a lot of, you know, perhaps looking into is what was that first century thought about what, what would that have meant to the person that heard it? Not, not what would it mean to us 2,000 years later when we sort of have a lot of sort of front-loaded <coughs> understanding and, and, and for the sake of our discussion, whether it's fully accurate or not, but what would it have meant to that guy when the rich young ruler said, "Rich young ruler said, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" What was he looking for? You know, what was he looking for in eternal life? You know, even the the famous John three sixteen, right? Um, I heard one guy make the point that he believes annihilationism is true because it says God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So there's a two contrasts there. Perishing and everlasting life. And so it seems to me we need to understand what perishing and what everlasting life are. And those are the key terms that come into discussion in these things. Um, so that's, that's that particular verse where he talks about, talks about that. And again, you, you can almost... It's very hard. This is supposed to be challenging. The whole idea of this is to challenge us to... Um, I think it's okay to be challenged all, almost to the brink of breaking down, sobbing, not understanding something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I think there's something beneficial to that. Um, and also, that the, the soul... This is an important thing he says. I think be, I cannot, I think, be replied that it's impossible to destroy human beings because they are immortal. For immortality and therefore indestructibility of the soul is a Greek and not a biblical concept. That there was no such thing as immortality in uh, in terms of you had to have your mortality maintained. That would be the whole argument about the tree of life, by the way. That the reason why God this would be the view of some that the reason why God put Adam and Eve out of the garden was because they had sinned and if they then ate from the tree of life they would live in that eternal state of separateness from God so they set angels in the garden the flaming angels with the flaming you know not the little cute chubby angels but the big massive mighty fiery sword burning I will destroy you if you get anywhere near the tree you know God never told them not to eat from the tree of life by the way right so that they couldn't get to the tree of life because what did God say we got to keep them away from that tree of life now. Mm. And what do you see in the Revelation? Tree a tree of life for the nations. So, the question of whether or not we were created immortal or not is another question. So, part of what we learn when we're interacting with Scripture is to make sure we understand stuff that's related to other stuff. Mm-hmm. You really have to look and have a whole understanding. And even if we don't come to a complete understanding, at least you've... And you know what's cool about Scripture? God must do this on purpose... The more that happens, you know, it's like a little kid when you have uh, these treasure hunts and everything, you know. God's got us, and in the process, we just, you know, God is, is ultimately the object that you're getting to, you know. In the process, God's just getting, this is the way it works with me, I hope it works that way with you, just gets you a little more excited about it uh, and, and into it. Yeah. I was just curious and thinking about, is there a difference when we look in Scripture and we see that you know, Christ defeated uh, sin and death. Mm-hmm. And exactly the definition of what that death is, is that mm-hmm. death a physical death? Right. Is it our soul death? Mm-hmm. Is it both? So it's a good question. If we're going to separate these two types of deaths, mm-hmm. then does it apply to both? Does right. it apply to one and right. not the other? Right. 
And we clearly are going to separate them to some extent. And again, this will bring into question what have I always thought about this or that. And again, not because it made it just, you know, the cream sort of rise to the top on our understanding of things, you know. When Adam and Eve said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What did that mean if there was no death for them to relate to? What did that mean? I mean, what did that mean? The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Eve, what does he mean by that? I don't know. I don't even know what he's talking about. You know what he's talking about? I don't know what he's talking about, darling. That you weren't going to speak Greek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> okay. The only thing I'm getting out of this yep. is this Scott guy mm-hmm. is saying all this about hell mm-hmm. and us and stuff. So, if he's questioning if our eternal whatever mm-hmm. in hell, mm-hmm. can she turn around and, and question that eternal glory with God also? Well, I would think you, you could do that. Sort of, that would be a good use of your philosophical and you know logical terms and all that. Except that the scripture is crystal clear that uh, glorying with God forever is in heaven. I mean, the scripture is very clear about that. Well, very he would clear? say no. That's his whole point. Okay. Yeah. Alright. Yeah. Part part of the part of our seeking. First of all, part of our. It's interesting that the threat of judgment seems to be left out of Acts because the whole idea of the gospel is reconciliation to God. You know what I mean? And so, uh, whether you're in hell, I guess, or in, in his view, annihilated ultimately, you're certainly not reconciled to God. Um, so you're going to stop talking Greek now, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> if, if by Greek you mean uh, there are things you don't understand, I, I hope I say things you don't understand so we can get some additional understanding. The way that I think sometimes these things work is you hear something you don't quite understand, then you ask a question that either I haven't thought of or somebody else might understand or that kind of thing. I think that's the way the body ultimately works. From a teaching perspective, it's to raise questions sometimes that maybe haven't been thought of before. I have not thought of these things in this way. When I encountered them, uh, I thought it would be very worthy. And I always you know, want to run <coughs> content you know, by the eldership, in which case I certainly spoke with Gary about presenting Stott's position in particular. because it's a Yeah, it's not just Stott. There are, there are sure. numerous evangelicals yep. that have no, embraced sure. this. Yep. He just happens to be one yep. of the... A better spokesman exactly. for it, right. uh, and he didn't promote it. Most no, of them don't promote it anyway. That's right. It's just submitted. That's right. But here's something that I think solves it, in my opinion. In Matthew 25, uh, you have the judgment of the sheep and the goat. Yep. And uh, to the goats, he says, "Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil mm-hmm. and his angels." Mm-hmm. So that the company that the wicked will be sharing, the goats, will be that of what the devil and his angels will be enduring. The question is, how long will the devil endure punishment? Mm -hmm. Will the devil too be annihilated? I doubt it. The scripture doesn't indicate such a thing. His torment is endless as well. In the following verses says, Jesus' own words, he says, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, Mm -hmm. but the righteous into life eternal. Mm -hmm. The two Greek words there are identical. Mm -hmm. The eternal punishment and the eternal life. So the existence of the one is equivalent to the existence of the other. Mm -hmm. The one being the wicked with the devil and his angels versus the righteous come ye blessed of my Father into the kingdom (coughs) which Christ will reign in forever and ever and ever. There will be no end to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so it will be as well with the devil, the angels and his cohorts will spend their eternal existence as well, e- eternal, eternally. Their mm-hmm. existence will be endless 
Um, and I think Jesus uses the language that ascribes to their existence equally to the existence of the righteous. And no one questions the, the uh, eternality of the, of the righteous. Mm-hmm. And it's true that we have the gift of immortality issued to us. The gift of immortality is, is uh, it's, it's really more than just a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. And that's what all believers will... We, we have it and we will inherit it for eternity. But anyway, Matthew 25, I think, gives us a good summation of, of, the, of the judgment and of the punishment and the duration of the punishment. Yeah, I think that... I think I don't know where and if, you know, at some point he interacted with that or not. Um, I think his question or response might be something like... Uh, and it seemed as though he mentioned that somewhere. I just don't know if I have it. Um, they use the word destroy. They make a big thing out of the word destroy. And that's a meaningful dialogue. It's it's important to have and that then discussion. The smoke of the torment. Yep. You know, meaning that it's 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 a finalized mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. But to me, it all goes back to the wages of sin is death. And I think mm-hmm. going back to what Tony said, how does this affect the atonement? Mm-hmm. If Christ died for our sins, did He die for my annihilation? Mm-hmm. Which is in essence what the ultimate end of a punishment is is annihilation and if Jesus' punishment was uh, temporal meaning that it, it was a finite punishment mm-hmm. rather than what all theologians have held that Christ's atonement was an infinite punishment that he endured mm-hmm. of, of eternal destruction that would have been issued to us for our sins mm-hmm. and it also helps us to understand the gravity of sin mm-hmm. eternal torment indicates far more severely how sinful sin is versus if sin is punishable by extermination. So now you're getting into the concept of justice which he brings up in another topic as well. We'll get to that. You know, what's just and what is... I mean, the big question to me ought to be like things, the atonement. What did it accomplish? I think his question, his response, I think we might engage it a little bit would be uh, annihilation is itself something... I mean, because you're not atoned for, annihilation is what you would ultimately get. And that it doesn't in any way diminish Christ's atoning work because that atoning work was never meant intended for you in the first place. It was never going to be yours. So whether you're annihilated or it, whether you live for ten thousand years, and, 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 and again, there's no discussion that I've seen in this. It's a topic I'd like to study more about. I mean, I only have time for so many things. I'd like to read a lot more on it and see what's being written today to see what kind of. There's no discussion at all. In scripture, if it's not. Eternal Scripture says nothing about how long it might be. I don't know, 100,000 years of torment? Um, 10,000 years of torment? Is it what Jesus said? Some will be beaten with many stripes, some with few. Is, is the uh, torment 10,000 years for some and 100,000 years for another? You know what I mean? I would, those are the things that, I mean, those are questions that come up. And all those who hold annihilation, mm-hmm. I think almost exclusively, also hold to the sleep of the soul, the unconscious state between death and the resurrection. Yeah, he does. They, use, they go together. They call that conditional immortality. Yeah, in fact, he makes a specific distinction between the two of those. He says that one is not the other. Let's see if I have that. They may be distinct, but they relate to one another because... Uh, Maybe in some mind, not in his particular view, I didn't, I didn't sort of copy and paste that. I can go over that with you maybe you mean privately. You mean Stott's position on conditional immortality? He doesn't, but he doesn't accept that. He believes in the consciousness oh, yeah. after death. Oh, absolutely. Yep. He rejects conditional uh, immortality. So, that seems to be a little bit unjust too. 
Yeah. For instance, someone like uh, Cain, mm-hmm. who slew Abel, who was of that wicked one, right. he would be being tormented now for thousands and thousands of years mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in hellfire right. right now, right. like Luke right. 16 is. Right. And yet somebody... Well, hell, yeah, but Luke 16, I don't think is hell. That's Hades. Well, I'm using the yeah. loosely Hades. Right. Word. It's still a place of torment. Right. But I think the point of that parable would be whether that's the intermediate state or not anyway. You know what I mean? Because I think even the intermediate state for the... And again, it would be, what do they believe in that? The, the, I know the Old Testament, there was no sense of heaven and hell. There was Hades. There was Sheol. That's it. It was just the netherworld. That's where you went afterwards. David told me when talked about it. That's where you went. You went to be with your fathers. You were gathered to your fathers and that kind of thing. There was no distinction. There was no talk about everlasting. It starts to come up a little bit in Daniel maybe. Right? Maybe Daniel 12. Yeah. Maybe. Well, Jesus certainly highlights it. Yes. When it says in Second Timothy 1.10 that mm-hmm. he has brought life yep. and immortality yes. to light yep. through the gospel. Right. So what was otherwise obscure, right. he now pulls back the curtain and gives uh, right. gives light right. in these areas. Right. But doesn't expose everything. Like one when, when, when of John's, re- John's thoughts, reasons for embracing annihilationism, <clears throat> along with many others, he says, if you really think about eternal conscious punishment, mm-hmm. you will crack. Yeah. You will crack. He yeah. uses that word. Like it, it's beyond it's beyond comprehension. I, I wish annihilationism was right because it's so severe. Yeah. But it's a reality. Yeah. It? I think a lot of those kinds of questions drive us back into the scripture. I mean, that's what drove us back into the scripture to find out that you know the earth was not the center of the universe. You know what I mean? We had to reconsider what the scripture was saying when when it was found out that uh, at the time Galileo made some <coughs> observations. And how that challenged their understanding, and they're like, "Well, how can it be? How can science be saying one thing and a Bible be saying another thing?" Well, let's check both the science and the Bible and find out what's going on. You check the Bible and you find out, well, there's understanding being brought to bear on that that doesn't exist in the, you know, that there was some uh, uh, spatially, some spatial understanding coming to the discussion about four corners of the earth that had nothing to do with science, so to mm-hmm. speak. So. I think those kinds of questions that come up in our mind should drive us. It should drive us to find. I would search high and low to see if there's any way that have I understood this. I got to make sure I understand this. Just like I got to make sure I understand that salvation is by grace through faith only. I got to reassure <coughs> myself of that every day. <laughs> Tony, I was thinking too that we. Have, I think we have difficulty, or at least I do, defining what. Um, <coughs> the different types of punishment. Obviously, we understand physical pain. We're alive and we experience physical pain. Uh, We experience emotional pain while we're alive. Um, But how do we define, experience what spiritual torture or pain is? Yeah, well, I think that's why we we get... difficulty with that. And then then it kind of runs right alongside, parallel Mm -hmm. to um, this forever thing. Yeah, I think the point that Gary made about hell being prepared for the devil and his angels is interesting because those are non-corporeal beings. In other words, those are spirit-only beings. They have no flesh and blood. They have. They're not dualistic. In other words, they don't have the. We're we're a sort of. Um, we have this. We have this material and immaterial nature. The devil doesn't. He's strictly immaterial. Angels are strictly immaterial. So then the question arises: Is that suited for? You know a different type of being I, these are just again so many questions come up in the course of this um, yeah, in, in, in Revelation 20 when the beast and the false prophet yes. are cast huh? into the same abode mm-hmm. as the devil is right. yep. so we, we believe them to be human beings 
and again there's a shearing of of habitation endlessly mm -hmm. with the demonic mm -hmm. we'll get more into that too in this discussion under imagery let's move into that the main function of fire is not to cause pain but to secure destruction as all the world's incinerators bear witness <laughs> hence the biblical expression of consuming fire and John the Baptist's picture of the judge burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire the fire itself is termed eternal and unquenchable but it would be very odd if what is thrown into it proves to be indestructible. Our expectation would be the opposite. It would be consumed forever, not tormented forever. Hence, it is the smoke, evidence that the fire has done its work, which rises forever and ever. Revelation 14 and Revelation 19.3 My argument with that, I guess, would be this carbon left over and whatever water or moisture that was in, the, in whatever you're burning... Um, gets boiled up into steam and goes into the air so if you think about it in a sort of a scientific way uh, whatever gets put into the fire does not ultimately get destroyed it changes its matter <coughs> even if that were true that would be something that we would understand now that they didn't understand then because they wouldn't have had that kind of especially yeah. the everyday person wouldn't have had that kind of thinking about it in that kind of a scientific terminology it would be ashes left over in a physical <coughs> yeah, but that would be right. But, which, of course, would be nothing compared to what it was. I, I, yeah, I think it's possible that... I, I wonder if hell is just a constant process of becoming less and less human. You know, you're just less and less of what you were. You know? We I have mean, the fire that uh, was burning, burning bush, but wasn't being consumed. Right. So you can have an endless fire without a, a, a total, total consumption. You can, but if I wouldn't... Use that as an example. Yeah, I, I think you could... I don't think that's an example that you can use in this case because I think the point that God's making there is His absolute transcendence and His independence from anything in the created order to make the case for what He's making the case for. I mean, to me, the burning bush was God saying, I can consume in this bush without having to have the bush be my fuel for my fire. I think God was making a point about His complete otherness. Um, I don't, so I don't think that's so much a... I don't think that that would be overly helpful here because it's such a different context. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Yes, we could debate that. Shadrach and Abednego weren't consumed by the fire right. because of the presence of Christ. Right. Uh, it easily could be deduced that uh, man's mortality, or mm -hmm. I should say resurrected body, does not necessarily have to be consumed by fire. Uh, I mean, I suppose that, again, that's something that could happen, but looking at the scripture what's, what's, what's sort of happening I mean they were preserved from destruction at that point out of right right and the question is does scripture say that it will that's the question in that case he did scripture showed that it did and there's so many things that have happened in scripture that don't become prescriptive they're just descriptive of something that happened right. then right. yeah I'm just thinking that um, is it not that God is all powerful and almighty and can do anything and if God proclaims that there uh, is going to be an eternal uh, fire mm -hmm. and there's going to be eternal <coughs> that it actually is going to take place whether we can fathom it whether we can understand it whether we can rationalize it the question is right and the question is what is that what is that is the question that's driving all of it is what is meant by eternal fire we have an understanding of words today that we throw around pretty easily uh, there are words that are used in the Old Testament uh, for all generations 
forever and ever. Which really aren't forever and ever. It's not discussing eternity. It's talking about right up to the end of that covenant. Although it doesn't say that. But we come to know that that's what it means. So Some do's and some do's. Right? Exactly. So it's, it's a question of, yes, God can do anything that God says He can do. It's not God can't do anything. I mean, there are things God can't do. Anything that's illogical, God can't do it, right? So, um, or anything that's contrary to his nature, he can't do. That's not a limit on his power and ability. It's just, that's not how God has revealed who he is. Uh, in the Revelation, but does the book of Revelation not say that in the lake of fire, quite, they will be, quote, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever? And of course it does, Revelation 20.10. Yes, that sentence occurs, but only once, uh, where it refers not only to the devil, but to the beast and the false prophet, just as the noun torment had been used for the harlot Babylon, though without the addition of the words forever and ever. The beast, the false prophet, and the harlot are not individual people, but symbols of the world and its varied hostility to God. Right? The beast and the false prophet are not individuals, he's arguing. Those aren't people. The harlot was not a person. They were symbolic for a system that was set against God. So you're not talking... So he says, he goes on to say, and again, I'm just... Uh, in the nature of the case, they cannot experience pain because it's not individuals you're talking about. It's an ideology. It's a system opposed to God. Nor can death and Hades, which follow them into the lake of fire. In the vivid imagery of his vision, John evidently saw the dragon, the monster, the harlot, death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. But the most natural way to understand the reality behind the imagery is that ultimately all enmity and resistance to God will be destroyed. So both the language of destruction and the imagery of fire seem to point to annihilation. This is, this is his point. So, how do we contend against that? How do we interact with that? I mean, he, he has a point about the false prophet and the beast and the harlot being represented by sort of a person, right? But it's, 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 it's much bigger than just a person. It's a whole system. I suppose you'd have to cross-reference it again to yeah. Matthew 25. Depart from me, cursed. Talking to human beings who are classified as goats on his left hand. Mm-hmm. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared mm-hmm. for the devil and his angels. Mm-hmm. So, unless you want to say that the devil and his angels have a different... Uh, distribution of judgment administered mm-hmm. to them mm-hmm. uh, it sure seems like the language is uh, that there's an equivalency mm-hmm. of punishment that both endure equally. The question I think would be what is everlasting punishment? The is it, is it, uh, could annihilation be a form of everlasting punishment? Well there's no hope for you. You're annihilated and there's no hope for you after. That's what I'm asked. That's what I ask. That'd be my qu- if, I, if I could have the conversation would start that's what I would ask them. You know what I mean? Um, and it's a little bit frustrating because they bring up these questions and they cause you to dig deep in and think carefully about uh, okay so how does that sort of comport with what I know to be true about God and he takes all four of these things together No one. it's almost like he's trying to in his mind he's building a cumulative case for annihilationism nothing in and of itself stands alone but the language the imagery the justice of God and the question about universalism which we'll get to next week um is sort of what drove his and again keep in mind he said I, I can't dogmatize about it I just you know to Mark's point and a few other points I think maybe it gave him a little bit of breathing space you know where he could say okay I can I'm comfortable knowing that it's possible that this happens it helps me to make it through the day kind of thing you know? uh, but it, it just goes to show you that if nothing else we have to make sure when we study scripture we understand it hermeneutically what was being said at the time? What did it mean to the people that first heard it? 
What did it mean for the people that first heard it? In Israel, okay, so the Old Testament really didn't have concepts of eternal punishment and eternal heaven. They didn't know about going to a heaven. They didn't know about going to a heaven. Unless I'm mistaken, I don't think that really comes up anywhere. Well, the kingdom was what they were looking forward to. Right. You know, where the lamb and the lion yes, lie down absolutely. together in yeah. that glorious eternal state. Yes, exactly. And whatever that is. And again, like, there are things that we just, we just, we're just not going to know about. We're just not going to know about. Um, we certainly know this, that, that sin is, as one guy put it, sin, is, uh, sin has consequences. We're all, we're, and we're all going to be held accountable. Um, I, I'm not convinced myself that hell is not eternal. <laughs> Even by all the arguments he presents, but it, but it does make me dig in and ask further and make sure I understand most fully. Um, there's another point. This is more a point of, I guess, philosophy than anything else, just before we go any further. I find it hard to accept that God would allow a misunderstanding of hell to go on in the church for 2,000 years. I do. I, I just, I, I just, I, I can't see how God, who preserves the Scripture, who preserves His people, who preserves so many things, would allow a misunderstanding of something so important to go on for two thousand years. Do you understand what I'm saying? <clears throat> Does that make sense? Um, you know, the early church. Uh, I don't know. Again, I'm studying this a little bit for the first time. When I came across this, I wanted to present it. Gary and I talked about it since we we're on the subject of hell anyway. I kind of stumbled across this. Um, but it got me thinking. So the early church fathers held to this. I don't know if there's early uh, evidence for annihilationism. I suppose, I don't know if the Arians held to that. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually look further into it. Maybe someone else knows. But even a creedal statement does not take away the mystery. Right, exactly. The doctrine revolves around <laughs> exactly. the truth. Yes. And when the truth is still veiled, yes, and already not yet centered, <coughs> yeah. yeah, that's tough. That's part of it then, too. Um, uh, Creedal statements don't solve it, though. right? And that's why I don't. It, it, it may be a, as as some theologians have said, it, it becomes a better guardrail uh-huh. to keep us on a path where we yeah. don't go into other heresies, yeah. because we said creedally that you know this is uh, yeah. what the church should believe yeah. in relationship to this eschatology. Yeah. It doesn't take away the mystery. Yeah. I don't think it would ever be solved. No. Uh, in terms of, you know, it could crop up a hundred yep. years from now. And yep. <coughs> and, and, and if it's such a key doctrine, again, I, it, it would be difficult for me to conceive that God would sort of, you know, I, I always say these things thinking, well, you know, I don't have a special, you know, closet in my room where I have God's full understanding, but... As I just think about God and how He perseveres His people and how He continues His church and how He builds it up and how we're the pillar of support of the truth and how we are um, we are united to Him and He to us, all these things come to mind. I say, could, is it possible that the church could be in error on something for two thousand years? I don't. That's a problem for me, Barry. Oh, I was hoping you would rescue me here. No, but uh, the, the thing is, I think the trouble is with us is we expect God to think like us. Huh? When he does it, we are astounded, like in his views of judgment and eternal yeah. hell. If, if he does this, we can't. He has trouble with it, so, yeah. and I get it. Uh-huh. You know, we all have trouble with eternal torture forever, mm-hmm. ever, ever. Yeah. But on the other hand, you could use that argument with uh, the number of saved themselves. To me, if mm-hmm. you're an unbeliever, you'd say, well, "Why are there only going to be a few mm-hmm. saved? If everybody, say the Armenians would say today, or oh, everyone has mm-hmm. chance to be saved." 
free will. But we know that there's going to be very, very few. So why would God allow the majority of mankind to go into eternal hell when really it was just a matter of their free will? That argument, I think, is a little bit, though, like the evolutionist argument. They assume with every question they ask that evolution is true. So every time they make a statement about something, Darwinian evolutionists, and they present some challenge to us, it's coming from the assumption that Darwinian evolution is true and we need to bear the burden of disproving it. So what you just said was, you know, we all have trouble with God's uh, ways and not our ways and we don't understand things the way he does. And that's true. But Stott's reply would be, I agree 100%. But what God is saying is, this is what my justice is like. I annihilate after a certain period of time. So the... So what this is, what what Stott's, what happened in Stott's worldview is it was completely challenged by what he thought he saw in Scripture. So it, I don't think he would disagree with you. I think he would say you're right. We do we, we don't think like God does. Um, our sense of justice isn't like God's is. But he would say Scripture says that God's justice is X, whereas you seem to think it says Y. And he's, and he's saying I think we should consider X. There no reason why God could not say it's eternal either. Right. Exactly. Oh, exactly. No, we, it, that's what we would say. We, we, would, we, we could say the, sort of the same thing. So, um, And the more that you can articulate... And work, but I keep in mind, too, that I, I know that God's wrath does motivate people to repentance. Okay? Um, and God sort of obviously uses His anger. Right? Uh, and somehow God's able to express His anger to our inner being so that we can actually experience his anger because I don't think we can experience his anger until he reveals it to us I mean because even like with the sinners in the hands of an angry God when Jonathan Edwards preached that and apparently I don't know I just go and buy the tradition okay I wasn't there uh, well you oh he's not here he was even, <laughs> oh, you were there right remember, remember when Edwards was preaching on sinners in the hands of an angry God um, so I, I guess a lot of, but I think God has to reveal that wrath we have to know someone's angry at us in order for us to respond to that anger right an unbeliever a person that's not touched by the spirit they haven't encountered God those that encounter God with this preaching on his wrath encounter God sort of in his anger in a way they've never encountered him before so they're discovering something about God uh, but I don't know that I don't know that what I ask myself in my mind is is the duration of hell relevant at all to the point of redemption of being saved does it in any way change whether or not sort of a person is going to be saved you know what I mean because God doesn't redeem us based on our human understanding and reasoning he reveals himself to our inner being and, and, and all of a sudden brings us to himself and, and reveals himself to us and so that we're suddenly in the presence of God in a way we couldn't have been before and that's what happens now, and, and we all know he uses a hundred thousand things along the way is the duration of hell one of those things God uses in terms of you know are, are there people that would say maybe there are people that would say like Mark said you know I could probably endure ten thousand years of torment as long as I don't have to bow to this God and I know eventually I'm going to be annihilated I can take it for ten thousand years well that would be idiotic for, for a person to say nobody, nobody can say that in their right mind <laughs> you know I mean we have a hard time making it through traffic so, we have to leave it here today. You got a last word before you well, pray for us, Paul, brother? Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, Amen. Yep. we persuade men. Yep. So, uh, regardless of whatever side you fall on, you have to certainly conclude that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living Our God. God is a consuming fire. And yeah. it is a fearful thing. There is no... And this is why I say I take no... I wouldn't take any comfort in... 
God is so great and to be with Him is so incredible and it is the fulfillment of our human destiny is to be with God that to not be with Him is the complete loss of all meaning and purpose mm. period it's, it's incompleteness it's, it's uh, yeah would you pray for us brother okay Uh, we think of the realities Lord of what we've been talking about that Lord they escape our understanding but we thank you O God for the promises that you make in your word that can never be altered we thank you for the confidence that we have that Jesus told us that where I am there you shall be also Lord we pray as well that we would have a burden for the lost and that we would even in our preaching today and in our witnessing to whoever Lord that we would always keep in mind the realities of eternity and how dreadful it is, Lord, for someone to die without Christ. As Jesus says, that if you die in your sins, where I am, you cannot come. Oh, Lord, what a dreadful mm. thought that is. So, Lord, help us to be uh, uh, invigorated by the truth of the gospel that we may present Christ and Him crucified as the only hope for mankind as we give you praise and worship in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Amen. We'll pick up on a little bit more than imagery and two more of his arguments next week. And then we'll interact with some very good sort of rebuttals to that, I think. Yeah. Do you have a chart so I could uh, provide to you guys? Not a rival, huh, brother? Oh.